0: Scripture this morning comes to us from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Listen now for a word from God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for time set aside to dwell on it. And Lord, we pray as we always do, that whatever words we would hear would come from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So many of you may have seen on our social media that uh, our daughter Naima is currently taking uh, dance classes which is just wonderful. Um, we, we were a little unsure at first because, you know, she's so young. She's only, I mean, she just turned two in December, and um, she barely made the cutoff to sign up for dance class for two- to four-year-olds. And um, we put her in the class because we want her, we got to kind of socialize these pandemic babies, you know. And uh, we thought, for better or for worse, it's, it's best that she at least tries. And the uh, first couple of weeks did not go well at all. She didn't want to be put down, I mean, she, it was, it, she says uppy when she wants up, so it was uppy daddy or uppy mommy, and so it, what it turned into was like a 30 to 45 minute workout for the parents carrying a 25 to 30 pound child on their hip, and like, for me it was awful because one, I, I can't dance, two, she's kind of heavy, <laughs> and she did not want to participate at all, so it, it, it was difficult. And, and as soon as we would walk in, she wouldn't want to be down. Like, she would hold our hand, and as soon as we walked into the door of the studio, she would say, uppie and then that was it. She was on our hip the rest of the time. And sort of giving everyone in the room the stink eye, you know what I mean? Some of you have probably gotten the stink eye from her, and I want to publicly apologize for that right now. I, we don't tell her to do that. There's no coaching going on. She is just a wary child. She's very observant, and she's very studious. And so um, dance class wasn't going well. It felt a lot like uh, there were all these strangers around, and she just wasn't too sure about it. And I honestly, I get that feeling. I I really do. You know, um, 20 years ago, if you were a Detroit Pistons fan, I would probably give you the same look. Any Pistons fans in here right now? Yeah, a couple of you. Good, good. I'm glad. So this is, this is why I get along with you all so well, you know. There's not too many of you Pistons fans around here. <laughs> no, but if, if you don't know about... Um, the, the Detroit Pistons. I mean, you, you all sort of have this history. I mean, the Bad Boy Pistons era. It, you were literally called the Bad Boys because they were so dirty, they were so rough. They were also really, really good. Uh, possibly some of the best NBA teams ever formed here in Detroit. Now that was that was long before my time, but I came along during the rivalry between my Indiana Pacers. And the Detroit Pistons and I'm sure we all remember or at least heard of the malice at the palace. Do you all remember this? When fights broke out. There's a lot of great documentaries on that uh, on that evening but I'll just say that for me solidified my um, my dislike of the Detroit Pistons. It, uh, it really concretized it in my heart and um, so much so that I actually went to a, a Pistons Pacers game shortly after that, I would say it was probably a year after that, so suspensions had been served, but the fallout was there, and my allegiances were, um, were for the Pacers. And so we got these tickets um, that were way up in the nosebleeds, and then, you know, the, uh, the method as a young person is to work your way down as the game goes on, and people aren't there. Well, we, we got close. We were trying to get close enough so that we could talk a little bit of trash to the Pistons players that were on the court. And we didn't get that close, but we did get close enough to see Joe Dumars sitting, I think he was like four or five rows back, and we were maybe four or five rows back from him, but he was within in- earshot. He was also within uh, throwing distance of a good kernel of popcorn. And um, yeah, you know where this is going. Um, so this, I, again, I want to say this was 20 years ago. Um, and me and my, my buddies, we started shouting things at Joe, telling him how much we didn't like his Pistons, how bad they were at basketball, even though they would go on to win the NBA championship uh, and compete a little bit. <laughs> and my Pacers, well, they're always losing. They're always losing. Um, but we started hurling these insults, and finally got him to turn around just a bit, just a glance, you know, like this. And um, and then I started throwing popcorn. <laughs> And I'm not kidding, I got, I got one kernel out, and then I went for another, and then security was on us like that. <laughs> and we were escorted out. Luckily, um, I'm allowed to go back. I wasn't, you know, permanently removed. But, you know, I behaved that way because I was sort of taught to think in us-versus-them terms. And I was taught to think that way because that's how we're all taught to think especially if you grow up in sports culture. And so, I just wanna talk about those stories a little bit this morning. You know, sports taught me about good and evil, and then movies like Star Wars, The Matrix, Lord of the Rings, Um, I, I mentioned The Legend of Zelda. For all you super nerds out there, and I'd love a show of hands on this, has anyone read Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea Cycle? Tim Moran, How Did I Know You Would, and also Lynn Binnick. <laughs> those would have been my two guesses, yeah. Uh, th- those books really shaped me, and, and I'm sure they, they shape all of us. Today, I actually read more comics than um, I ever thought that I would, and it, it's because these big, broad stories are sort of baked into these narratives, and they tell these sweeping stories that really all of us can get behind. These worlds are made up of heroes and villains, light and dark, good and bad. And it's up to us, as the reader, as the viewer, as the one observing, to sort of choose which side we belong to. These meta narratives shape us and they give us direction. And there are so many who would say they're necessary. We need more people reading stories like this. And I think that's partly true. They help us frame our futures. They help us frame our presence. They help us frame the past. They lead us into new histories. They have value. Please hear that. I also think they damage us as people, especially when it's the only story we seem to know. Us versus them. And this construct turns us against one another. It gamifies things like politics, and teaches us really to map simple narratives onto what turn out to be very complex issues and situations. When we start seeing one another as enemies, we struggle to see each other as people. Three-dimensional human beings with complex pasts, passions, and struggles become flattened into these caricatures that lack any real depth. Republicans become evil, Democrats become godless, and Pistons fans, well, the Bible's actually very, very clear on where we stand with Pistons fans. The world has an empathy problem. We've villainized and cartoonified our neighbors, stripped them of their dignity, dimensionality, and humanity, and we've turned real-life people into the most basic of villains. Any Spider-Man fans out there? I <laughs> got a few. Okay, that's good. I didn't, I didn't know if we'd have any, so. Spider-Man has this nemesis named Dr. Otto Octavius, Doc Ock for short. He's this brilliant scientist slash narcissistic psychopath with mechanized tentacles sort of climbing out of his back. You've probably heard of him. He appears in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 and then the recent No Way Home movie. And he has this run of comics where he kills Spider-Man. And then through this conceit that really only makes sense within the comic universe, Doc Ock inhabits Peter Parker's body and mimics his life. He sleeps in Peter's bed, he dates Peter's girl, he even dons Peter's Spidey suit. Then He discovers something about Peter through this process. All these years Spider-Man has been pulling his punches. The guy that Doc Ock just murdered actually never tried to do the same thing to him. In fact, Spider-Man at times actively fought to keep Doc Ock alive. And this revelation breaks the villain. And so he vows to take up the mantle and become a superior Spider-Man. Now, the superior Spider-Man ran 33 issues from 2013 to 2014, and it cataloged Doc Ock's struggle to atone for his sins and find something like redemption. His willingness to stretch morality in the comics makes the superior Spider-Man much more effective at eliminating crime but it also gives him this really nasty edge. The superior Spider-Man doesn't pull his punches. Does this version of Spider-Man ever come an unabashed hero in the comics? No, not really. But as readers, we spend the better part of two years inside Doc Ock's headspace, learning his fears, his struggles, and the deepest longings of his heart. And that's when something else happens. He stops being a villain. And he becomes human. Comics do this all the time, actually. Magneto, the bad guy in the X-Men movies, just completed an arc in one of the offshoot of the uh, X-Men comics where he quite literally sacrifices his life to save the planet. In Ryan Coogler's Black Panther, um, the villain Killmonger at the end dies teaching the hero of Black Panther the importance of sharing. These stories, the very best ones in my opinion, maintain their footing in the world of good and the world of evil. But they also sidestep our reductive answers for something more nuanced, human, and true. This happens outside of comics as well. In uh, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, anybody? Any fans? No? Probably just me? (laughs) In the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Pete, the traditional villain in the old Disney cartoons, plays this antagonistic role in the show. But instead of villainizing Pete, Mickey and the gang seek to understand him. And by the end of most episodes, he's forgiven. And he's brought into the fold as part of the larger team. The movie Encanto does this as well. Another movie that Naima seems to like. It has no traditional villain and gives each character a vital role and purpose no matter their level of giftedness. Even characters as shunned as Bruno are treated with dignity and respect. And even here... In our scripture for this morning, where we read this passing comment in some obscure text written thousands of years ago, where we have God saying to Abraham, Go from your country, and go from your kindred, and go from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And to the untrained eye, this passage seems to be just God calling another person to adventure. And this is often all we do see. But we have to understand the risk in Abram's actions. He's leaving his land the only place that he's likely ever known. He's leaving his family and kin. He's leaving his livestock, his economic opportunities, his security. He's leaving everything behind, and I hope, I hope we caught this, he's leaving everything behind not to go conquer the world not to go defeat the forces of evil that are threatening everything and not to go proselytizing to everyone that he finds so that everyone can know about God and how great God is and how you should only worship God in these specific ways. Abram is being called out to be a blessing to all the people of the earth, to love, to show hospitality, To welcome the stranger. Abram is literally blessed to go out and do this. And that is going to be his life's adventure. He's not even going to deal with those who curse him that might become enemies later on down the road. God says, I'll take care of that. You just go and be blessed to be a blessing. And leave behind all that is familiar, God says. Leave behind those people that you consider us. Leave behind your family. Leave behind the familiar and go wander among them. Those people. And you know, I don't know if I would do that, but Abram is maybe crazy enough to listen. And of course, as he goes on his journey, he's actually really awful at doing what God wants him to do. And if you read these stories, you'd be like, he, he doesn't get it at all, but he's willing, and he's trying, and he's trying to act out this deeper reality and this new story that God seems to be trying to tell through him. And I was wondering this week, you know, what does it say about our culture that preschool-level entertainment depicts the world with more dimensionality and nuance than most adults streaming watch lists and Facebook feeds. Or what does it mean that the villains in childish comics maintain more human, excuse me, maintain more humanity than people we call enemies in real life? Or what does it mean that our scriptures have been pointing to this construct for millennia? And more often, we read the scriptures the opposite way to highlight all of our enemies and then sanctify ourselves as superior and as good and as holy. Most parents and Sunday school teachers that I know teach their kids to empathize, and our children's media seems to want to do the same. And so the question is what changes? When does the shift occur? When does the turn happen? At what age do we squeeze all of the empathy and humanity out of our media diets and become adults? And since when did the term adult become synonymous with unempathetic? Maybe we can learn to be friends again and kids again, to adventure into the unknown, blessed by God, to be a blessing to others, not to be conquerors out for vengeance. And perhaps cartoons and comics and scripture can help lead us along that path. The best of these stories know that the real world isn't shaded in black and white and that real people aren't flattened caricatures but complex, often contradictory beings, each a unique cocktail of hopes, fears, vices, loves, and regrets. These stories know that villains can be lovely and sometimes lovely people can be downright awful. This is Paul, in my opinion, when he's at his best. What does he say? There's no longer Jew nor Greek, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. And he says later in Romans, he says, what then are we to say if God is for us? Amen, Jim. Thank you. This is a Presbyterian church, by the way, so (laughs) be careful shouting out like that. (laughs) I'll just tease (laughs) it. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, look at me. I did it. I'm in a sea of Pistons fans. I'm doing (laughs) alright. Friends, I think it's time we tell a different story. A story that rejects the simple binary of us versus them, a story that doesn't know anything about insiders and outsiders, a story where we all belong and overcome obstacles together. You know, this past week at dance class, we walked in the door, and um, Naima asked to be put down, and then she waited in the hallway and you know, she was still her shy self. She was sort of giving the stink eye to people. And when we walked into the studio where we were gonna have dance class, she was, she was up, she was on her hip. But as soon as the music started playing, she asked to get down. And she watched for a moment and looked at everyone. And then when they started doing their dance moves, and um, I, I'll just do a few of them if you'll humor me. We start, we start with a little bit of this, and then there's a little bit of this, and then there's some toe tapping. She started doing the moves with everyone. And then 30 to 35 minutes later, she had done every single dance move that she had been learning over these past six weeks. And it was a beautiful moment for us as parents because we felt like, oh my gosh, our our kid is going to be socialized. This is okay. We're, We're fine. This is great. But the instructor at the dance studio did something that I will never, ever forget. She stopped the class and she turned off the music and she looked around at everyone. She smiled. She said, Give yourselves a round of applause. And everyone clapped like we always do. And then she looked at Naima and she squatted down and she said, Give me a second. She said, I just wonder if we can give another round of applause for our friend here, who is often on the outside and often kind of looking at us suspiciously and not participating. I wonder if we can give her a round of applause because she participated the whole time. And so everyone in the dance class starts clapping. And the beautiful thing was was that Naima starts clapping as well, probably because she's mimicking everyone. But I also like to think because she finally saw that she belongs. And that we all belonged there, and that this wasn't a group to be suspicious of, but actually, this is a group where love exists, where she can play, and she can be herself, and she can participate. And my hope, friends, is that we tell more of those stories of radical belonging, of love, and of joy. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for dance class. God, thank you for great instructors. Thank you for the grace that you give us all. God, I pray that you would help us tell a different story, a story without insiders and outsiders. God, a story of belonging and inclusion and love. In Jesus' name, amen.